in your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. And I think you could turn it down a little bit, John. It doesn't need to be that low. Thank you. Isaiah chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 5 through 11. And if you remember, now Isaiah is forth-telling. He's preaching to the people. He's speaking to this iniquitous nation, and he is confronting them with their sin. Of course, in the hopes that there would be repentance, that they would walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Amen. And last week we we began to look at verse 7. We looked at the first part of verse 7. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. They were resting and depending solely upon their finances, their money, to get them by. And we've got a lot of money in the bank. We're doing well. Things are great. We're prospering. God is blessing us. Our, our, our vats are, are full to the overflow. Our grains are stored up to the heavens. And uh, we're doing great. But they were trusting in those things more than they were trusting in God. But now look at the second half of the verse. And it, actually, it took me some time to think through the, what's the application here? What, what is Isaiah getting at? Their land is also full of horses. And there is no end to their chariots. Of course, immediately, what comes to mind is they they were depending on their own military prowess. Remember, they lived in a region of the world where uh, there was constant war going on. Nation invading nations. It's still like that today. And they just don't use horses and chariots. I will continue. But, 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 but listen to, and I think that's it. What, what the Lord is saying to them is, do not trust in the arm of man. Do not trust in the strength of man, in what man can do to protect you. Trust in me alone. But I actually think there's more. Because Isaiah brings up this particular theme two times. Two other times. We'll, we'll take a look at just one, one text uh, from Isaiah and one from Deuteronomy. In the law, in this very same place, in Deuteronomy 17, 15, where God had told the nation of Israel not to multiply silver and gold, 
He also says this, Deuteronomy 17, 16. And um, he's speaking to the king, remember, specifically, but then the application would be general to the people. This would also apply to the people. So specifically to the king in Deuteronomy 17, 16, and think of Moses' foresight, right? There was no king in Deut- uh, during the, the time when Moses wrote Deuteronomy 17. There wasn't a king in the nation, right? You still have uh, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, first, second, you know, right? kings, before you actually have a king. But listen to what Moses writes. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. And now this is the important part. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. So there was a time when the monarch was, was divided. The monarchy was divided in Israel. I read an interesting article where the... Uh, the Jewish people became experts at breeding horses, and even to this day, they are very uh, a very equestrian-minded people. But horses and raising horses, that wasn't native to their land. That's not the way that they fought wars. Okay. So they would have to return to Egypt to acquire these horses. Now, look, listen to Isaiah 31. 1, 31-1. And, and God doesn't want them to return that way. God does not want them to go back to Egypt. Isaiah 31-1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Okay, what's going on here? What I think Isaiah is saying is, do not return to your place of bondage. Do not revert to your old ways to liberate yourself from present dangers. The, the common practice of man is, even the Christian people, is when they're going through great difficulties, instead of depending on the Lord, calling upon the Lord their God, instead of seeking the Holy One of Israel, what they do is they will revert back to their old sinful ways to try to preserve their life to try to save themselves. They turn back to their old tactics. tactics. If, if they were a deceptive person, they go back into being a deceptive person. They'll slip back into that sinful ways, back into their old sinful ways. And what Isaiah is saying is that do not do that. Or, or here, really, in Isaiah 2, he says, that's what you've already done. What you've chosen to do is turn your back on the Lord and go back to bondage. You've gone back to slavery in an attempt to deliver yourself from your present danger. And he says, do not do that. 
As Christian people, this is something that individually we have to be watchful for. When things get difficult in our life, when trials, they're they're going to come. Trials, difficulties will enter our lives. And we have to be watchful that we don't revert back to our sinful ways to resolve our issues, but that we turn to the true and living God. Corporately as a people, there are sins that uh, characterize not only people, but even congregations. And we have to be very watchful, very careful that corporately we do not turn back to sinful ways to try to accomplish things when we're in the midst of difficulty. The exhortation, of course, is we must look to the Holy One of Israel. We must seek God in times of difficulty, not look to our own strength. Of course, the spiritual application is in Ephesians, in Galatians, and all over Romans epistles, which is put to death the deeds of the body. That's what we ought to do. We ought not to feed those things. We ought not revert back to them. We must turn to the true and living God. And uh, Sunday worship is a vital part of that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek his presence, his face this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the instruction that your word provides your people. May we not seek for protection in anything but you. May we not seek comfort, joy, in any other source, Lord, but in you. Help us, Lord God, to be a people who are wholly dependent upon the Lord. May that characterize us uh, completely, individually as members and then corporately as a people. May it be known that we trust in the Holy One of Israel and that we seek the Lord when we have great needs and even small needs, Lord God. Please forgive us for those of us here who have gone back to our bondage, who've gone back to sinful ways to try to find joy, pleasure, peace, protection. Grant us repentance, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for those who are here who have been able to put the deeds of the body by the Spirit and have been strengthened by you and given great hope and confidence in depending upon you alone. And we ask, Lord God, that... um, you would be here with us, that you would bless our singing, our praying, our preaching, the reading of the scriptures, that these things might help us, Lord, to turn to the light and walk in the light of the Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, Please stand and sing.
please remain standing for our Old Testament scripture reading. For our Old Testament scripture reading, we're in Exodus 9. Exodus 9, we'll be reading verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Exodus 9, 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and I will not let, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried as slaves and his livestock into the hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch my, out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. <clears throat> but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and, and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. Please remain standing as you're able and sing.
Please remain standing as you're able for our New Testament scripture reading. We are in Mark, Mark 11. We'll be reading verses 12 through 26. Mark 11, verses 12 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the, t- the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through, through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. Please remain standing and sing.
before we take the Lord's Supper, we are going to admit two members, new members, into our congregation. So, uh, the Palumbos, uh, Victor and Gail Palumbo, if you please would come forward and uh, face the congregation. I'm going to ask you uh, five, five questions and you affirm or don't affirm these questions. Um, if you don't affirm, you automatically, you're standing right where the trap door is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, let, let me read the uh, questions here. Uh, Victor and Gail, do you believe the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh. Do you confess that because of your sinfulness, you abhor and humble yourself before God, and that you repent of your sin, and that you trust for salvation not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone? Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, you will serve him with all that is in you? Forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life. Do you promise to participate faithfully in this church's worship and service, to submit in the Lord to its government, and to heed its discipline, even in cases you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life. All right, and now to the congregation. This is an exhortation. Uh, from this time forward, as they've um, confessed these things and uh, will become members, this entire congregation is obligated to love and receive the Palumbos as members of this church. As the Palumbos are received, they are received now into full communion of this congregation, and they receive these obligations of being in full communion with us. For in Christ, we are all one member. One, we are one. Christ claims the Palumbos as his own and calls us to receive them and to love them and to commit ourselves to them. Therefore, you, and me, of course, we, as a congregation, ought to commit ourselves before God to assist the Palumbos in their Christian nurture by godly example, by prayer, and by encouragement in our most precious faith and in the fellowship of believers. All right, so I'm going to have uh, Fernando uh, pray for them, and then... Um, well, you know, clap and do a little dance. <laughs> uh, I think you got to uh, push the button for now. It was, oh, I turned it off. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we are grateful 
for your work with the church. Uh, we thank you especially for this church that you're building up here. Thank you for the manifestation of this word that uh, you add these two members to our family. We ask you, Father, that you bless them with our um, work here and allow us to be instruments to build them up, to encourage them, and to bring them up to you in whatever need they have. Allow us to be a manifestation of your love to each one of them. And Lord, we pray, Father, that you keep doing this into our church, and we are grateful that your manifestation of your work is here in this valley. And I pray, Lord, that you keep adding members to this small church that you have here, but it is small, but it's true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So it's off for the next person. <laughs> okay. So we uh, will now uh, take the Lord's Supper together. And I've been discussing the covenants, specifically the Abrahamic covenant. And this is our fourth week. And remember, I left you with a statement that the new covenant is not merely, and that's important, is not merely the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is grander and greater. And uh, I have three points. I don't know how many of these points I'm going to get through for the Lord's Supper. If I try to get through all three, we'll be here all day. But three points. So I'll stop at a convenient place and then pick up next week. Three points under this first heading. That the new covenant is not merely the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The first is... The promise of the gospel was revealed to Abraham. It was clearly revealed to Abraham, and we'll see this from Galatians. Second, I'm going to describe or talk about the substance of the promise of the gospel as it was presented to Abraham. And when we talk about the substance, the substance of the covenants, um, that's important language, and it means, you know, uh, to, to put it in a very basic way, what is it made up of? Right? So the substance of the thing. So if you say, what is the substance of this cup? Right? There's coffee. So technically, magic. Right? The substance is no. But uh, so right, what is it made up of? So and so I'm going to describe the substance of the promise of the gospel as presented to Abraham. And third, the seed to whom the promise of the gospel was made. And the seed who received the promise. So the seed to whom the promise was made and the seed who received the promise. They're two different seed actually. And we'll, we'll see this. So let's turn to Galatians 3. I'm going to read verses. And this is, this is vitally important. It's vitally important as New Testament believers to allow the apostles to interpret the Bible for us. We could raise all manner of objections about how to interpret the Bible, but when the apostles interpret the Bible for us, our duty is to shut our mouths, open our ears, and believe what the apostles say. So listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, therefore know 
Right? Therefore, God, he, he believed the promise. He was counted righteous. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now look at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Okay. So first... The promise was revealed to Abraham. The promise of the gospel was revealed to Abraham. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham's faith, his belief in the promise of God, was the instrumental means by which he was counted righteous before God. And if you want to know what all that means, Sunday school. We're teaching on justification. So, so in essence, right, uh, and this is a wonderful text that, that uh, it discusses in particular the issue we were talking about today, that under the preaching of the word, these graces, these gifts are given to God's people. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So where does faith come from? Does it come from the man? Does it arise from our own spirit? No, it comes from the preached word. God powerfully works to, to create life and faith. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Abraham heard this magnificent promise, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And he believed that promise. He held on to the word of God and his faith was, as Paul said, counted to him for righteousness. As all believers are counted, reckoned righteous by faith in the promise so was Abraham. Or you could say conversely, really, as Abraham was, so are we. This is the greatest news because it, uh, Paul here is clearly teaching that salvation is not by the works of the law. That is the context. It is by believing in the gospel. And that is what Abraham did. Paul points to a specific promise, though. He doesn't point to the entire substance of the Abrahamic covenant. He points to a specific promise contained in the Abrahamic covenant. Listen, listen to verse 8. And the scripture, of course, God, this is amazing, right? Because he puts the term scripture in place of God. Because, you know, the, the scriptures don't foresee, but God foresees, so he records it in his own word. That's the kind of reverence and respect we should have for the word of God. That, that's an aside. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, right? So, so God knew that he would bring many sons to glory. He knew that we would be sitting here, some of us... Uh, you know, a mixture of things, Irish and Italian and German and this and that. And he knew that we would believe. So what he did was he, he placed the promise of the gospel very early in the Bible. And, 
it was one of the promises that Abraham believed. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, he preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Before the gospel, before the good news itself was accomplished, God was already declaring it to his people. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And this promise is repeated. This is taken from Genesis 12.3. I'll read the text. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then again in Genesis 18.18. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis 28.14. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you all and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this this particular promise of the gospel was repeated throughout the Old Testament particularly in Genesis here to Abraham and to the patriarchs. But now notice what he says. And this is, this is a, um, a really uh, amazing point that he makes here. Because he uses the language of being counted righteous, of imputation. The imputation of righteousness, of uh, the imputation of righteousness, and then even the imputation of sin, or not imputing our sins to us. In verse 6, the phrase counted righteous is a description of the person, Galatians uh, 3.6, is a description of the person who has faith in the promise. If a person believes the promise, you are counted righteous. It is a positive statement. Righteousness is credited to us by faith. That's his point. So Abraham was counted righteous. Now, in uh, in verse, give me one second. In verse, in verse eight, yes, in verse eight, the um, in, in, in yes, in this verse, in verse eight, blessed describes the person who has faith in the promise. So there are two terms to describe the person who believes in the promise. The first is he's counted righteous. The second is that he's blessed. And this is actually a negative, a negative statement. And what do I mean by that? To be blessed means to be forgiven, not to have your sins counted against you, to have your sins covered. Paul tells us this in Romans. Romans and Galatians interpret each other. Listen to his words in Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, which is, this is what we need. We need, as ungodly people, we need to be justified. And God does it, not because of our works. Just as David, verse 6, also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. He's going to describe it here. This is from the book of Psalms. So verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. 
and whose sins are covered. If, you know, charismatics they, they, uh, uh, they, uh, and word of faith preachers and teachers, they, they, they uh, denigrate the word blessed, right? Because for them, it's material prosperity. It's money in the bank. But when Paul and David choose to interpret the word blessed, the person who's blessed is the person whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute, he shall not reckon, he shall not count sin. That is what it means to be blessed. The blessings of the gospel were not only bestowed upon those who had um, See, okay, so, so um, I'll read that in a second. So what, what is Paul saying in Galatians 3, 6 and following? Well, his point is very clear. What Paul is saying is that Abraham was counted righteous and his sins were not imputed to him because he believed the promise. He was justified. He was justified because he believed the promise of God. He believed the gospel, and so are we. That's how we are justified. Now, the blessings of the gospel were only bestowed upon those, or uh, we could put that present tense, but I'm thinking of the Jews or the descendants of Abraham in particular. So we could say the blessings of the gospel are only bestowed upon those who have the faith of believing Abraham. But among the children of Israel, even during Abraham's time, the blessings of the gospel were only bestowed upon those who had the faith of believing Abraham. These blessings are described by Paul as being reckoned righteous and being blessed, forgiven, right? Sins forgiven, sins covered, sins not imputed. In other words, justification. And this is the substance of the new covenant, This is what the new covenant is made up of. So in Jeremiah 31, 34, when God is declaring the new covenant to the people of Israel, he says in Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. I will justify my people. They will stand before me as righteous, not based upon their own works, but upon the basis of the work of my son. But this promise was not the substance. It was not essential to the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, these spiritual blessings, this spiritual blessing was mingled with earthly promises. The substance of the Abrahamic covenant was earthly. It was material. It had to do with geography, with a particular piece of land and a particular ethnic people. And since this was the case, you did not have to be a believer to inherit the earthly promises. And I'll show it to you. I'll prove it to you. Listen to Joshua 21, 43 through 45. What you'll hear, you'll hear things like this. The nation of Israel must return to Palestine because God has has never fulfilled the promises that he made to Abraham. You'll hear that, okay? Well, well, let's, let's listen to the Bible. Joshua 
21. Remember now, right? We're in the book of Joshua, and this is the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua ends chapter 24, I believe. God brings the people uh, into Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt. They're 40 years in the wilderness. That generation dies. Joshua takes over. He brings them into the land, and they have great conquest. And listen to the words here. Joshua 21, beginning at verse 43. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered them of all their enemies from all their enemies into the land. Not a word failed of any of the things which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All had come to pass. I, I, you can't be clear. That can't be, you, you cannot be clear. So when, when somebody says to me, we're having this discussion, God has never fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. There's basically either one, you're being deceptive, or you don't know your Bible. One or the other. And you know, we don't know, I don't know everything in the Bible. So you could not know. And that's okay. Here is an opportunity to learn. But, But so, the question is, so were all the ethnic descendants of Abraham believers? Was that why they received the earthly promise? Well, Joshua 24, beginning at verse 19. And then in Judges, we'll look at a text in Judges. Joshua says to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has, uh, uh, after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to them, your witness is against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord for yourself to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord God to serve him. They were worshiping idols. Even as God had given them the land of promise, they were worshiping and serving idols. And God threatens them. And he says, through Joshua, don't do that. I am holy and I must be honored. Now look at, now listen to the words of Judges, chapter 2. Judges, chapter 2. Beginning at verse 11. Then the children of Israel who had received the promise. Joshua, he's, he's fresh in the grave. He just died. He just finished dying in chapter 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And they forsook the Lord their God, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. So, you did not have to be a believer to inherit the Abrahamic promises. That's clearly what these texts say. They they don't teach anything else. That's exactly what they teach. But to receive the spiritual blessings that were contained in the Abrahamic covenant, you had to believe. To be a true son of God, you had to have faith in the promise. So, that was a mixture. The promise was presented and the substance of the promise that was presented. I, I just gave you those two things. But now, who is the seed to whom the promise was made? This particular gospel promise, who is that seed? Who is it? Was it the entire nation of Israel? Every single Jewish person, right? So so this is the conception. You have two conceptions, actually. First is every single Jewish person will go to heaven because they're Jewish. And that is completely wrong. The second is that at a particular point in history, every Jewish person will be saved. And uh, many Christians hold that particular view. And uh, I don't have too much of a quarrel with that one. But listen to whom the promise was actually given. The promise was never given. The promise of the gospel was not given specifically to the ethnic nation of Israel. Paul tells us this in Galatians 3. Look at verse 16. Now... To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds as of many. He doesn't say to every single ethnic Jewish person as to many. No. What does he say? But as of one and your seed who is Christ. This promise was given to Christ, that he would rule the nations, that he would have a people that would come to faith in him. That is who the promise was given to. But now, who are those who from the hand of Christ receive that promise? Do you have to have a particular kind of blood coursing to your ve- through your veins? No. Go back to verse 7. Therefore know, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. It's only believers. Believers are sons of Abraham. Why? Because they are not born of the flesh, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, by the Spirit. Those are the sons of Abraham because they believe in the promises of God. They are enabled to believe. And there are Jews and there are Gentiles in that mixture. Right? It's, and, um, so there, there was somebody who attended here who asked one of our members, hey, uh, does your pastor teach replacement theology? Right? That uh, Israel, that the church replaces Israel. And I think that that question was asked innocently 
But I think the person who is spreading that gangrene was not doing it honestly. But I don't believe that because the Bible nowhere teaches it. What the Bible teaches is that the two have become one. There's no, there's no replacement. That, that is what Paul teaches. Listen to what he says in, um, it's, uh, in Ephesians. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. So you're, you're hearing me teach this, which is, this is not dispensationalism, right? Uh, um, so you're hearing me teach this, and what will happen is if you start to search the internet, you'll come up with, you'll, all kinds of crazy stuff will come up. Well, that's, or if you talk to somebody who's a dispensationalist, that's replacement theology. No, you're out of your mind. Listen to what Paul says. For he himself is our peace, Christ, who has made both one, both who? Jews, Gentiles. He's made them one people now. There's no separation. And this is part of the reason why the form of worship that was given to Israel, which was good and holy and pure, that form of worship, temple, animal sacrifices, eating particular foods, that form of worship was removed. This is what he says next. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Why did he do that? So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Peace with who? Peace with Jews and Gentiles. There's peace between the two people. Why? Because the thing that separated them, particularly here, the ordinances that the Jewish people had, Christ, Christ removed them because everything that they pointed to has now been fulfilled. The, uh, the, the high priest, you don't need a high priest anymore. Why? Christ is our high priest. You don't need a sacrificial lamb anymore. Christ is the sacrificial lamb. You don't need a temple anymore because Christ is our temple. Right? And when we gather together in the spirit, we are the temple of God. So you don't need those things anymore. Why? Because they were all types and shadows pointing to a future reality. If you read your Bible the other way, we're living in a time of shadows and types, and in the future, the reality is going to come. But that's not the way that Paul ever puts it. Types, shadows, blessed things, magnificent things that pointed to what Christ would one day accomplish. But once Christ accomplishes those things, the, book, the author to the book of Hebrews says, don't turn back to those worthless things. They don't have any power anymore. The thing they were given for, it's, it's over. So, as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So the enmity between Jew and Gentile, satisfied, removed. The enmity between Jew and Gentile against God because of their sins, satisfied in Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So, I got the three points. The promise of the gospel was revealed to Abraham. It was. The substance of the promise of the gospel was presented clearly. You will be justified. You will be counted righteous. And you will be forgiven of all your sins. And the seed 
to whom the promise was made is Christ. And the seed who received, plural, the seed who received that promise are those who are born of the Spirit, those who are truly sons of God. That's why in, in, in Baptist churches, we don't baptize babies and we don't offer unbelievers the Lord's Supper because these ordinances are only for Christians. So if you are not a Christian, what we invite you to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be counted righteous in Christ and all your sins will be forgiven. If you are a professing Christian and you're living in a pattern of sin, we ask you not to take the supper. And I say we because as a congregation, we should stand together saying this. So that if you're sitting next to somebody and they, let's say they come with you and you know they're not a Christian and they take the Lord's Supper, maybe you should have a conversation after church and say, you know, I know you. And what you're doing is harmful to your soul. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because you don't live like a Christian. Not by my own standards, right? Not that I figured out how a Christian should live, but the word tells us. So we would ask you not to take the supper. We would ask you to repent of your sins. Turn. For the Christian, though, who is struggling, you're fighting sin, and you may be losing Right? There, you, you may be at a point where you're in despair and hopeless. The supper is for you. This is a reminder that Christ died for your sins. And although you may be facing great difficulties, your standing before God is perfect. You, you are justified before him because of what Christ accomplished for you. So you are encouraged. We encourage you. We want you to take the supper. And for those of you who, by the grace of God, you're doing well in your Christian life, you're being faithful to those things to which God has called you, this is an opportunity for you to confess that it's not in my own power. It's because Christ died for me. So let's uh, you know, come forward, take uh, the bread and take the fruit of the vine, and then we'll be seated and uh, pray and take the supper.
headbutt. Like, okay, that's new. <laughs> Never seen that before. <laughs> uh, all right, let's, um, let's pray together, and then we'll take the bread. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, look to these things, it's not just a mere academic interest. Lord, it, it's not for the sake of uh, winning an argument or one-upping each other uh, with regards to theology and doctrine. Our desire, Lord, is to understand the gospel, the, the substance of the gospel, and to understand the things that we ought to set our heart upon, the things that we ought to hope for. So we thank you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, the Lord, uh, for, for those who are among us or brothers and sisters that we may know who wouldn't agree with uh, this particular interpretation Lord, uh, we do have union and fellowship in Christ. Christ died for their sins. And uh, we thank you for them, Lord. And we ask that uh, in time, you would help them to see uh, the error of their ways. Um, but Lord, may we treat them with Christian charity, with uh, love, and with respect, Lord. We ask that you would please bless this bread and that you would strengthen us by it, Lord God, to serve you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. That's a pretty good piece of bread. <laughs> wow. Amen. <laughs> yeah, the taste and see that the Lord is good. For those of you who don't take the Lord's Supper, repent and believe. Uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. This is our third week. We're looking at the text now, the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll deal with verse 16. Remember what I said last week, uh, that the, the commands in verse 16 and following, and then the explanation of the command uh, there, it is, uh, or... The fruit of the Spirit is the communal, corporate people of God, the communal expression, or we could say the communal expression of these gifts. And this is what Paul is commanding, the communal expression of these gifts, of the gift of the Spirit, so as to combat Christian cannibalism, right? Biting and devouring one another. We don't want that. We don't want to be at odds with each other. So we combat Christian cannibalism by expressing these gifts among each other and cultivate a spiritually vibrant community. So it is for the sake of the peace of the church and it is for the sake of our Christian witness that these gifts ought to be expressed. Primarily, it is that first that Paul is concerned with. Right? Remember what he says but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you are consumed by one another. Right? You, 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 you become Christian cannibals. You hate each other so much. You're vicious towards one another. And there's no longer a church. So it's, it's an imperative that these gifts are expressed, that we express these gifts so that we can become, so that we can combat Christian cannibalism and cultivate a spiritually vibrant community, Christian community. So the exhortation, this is a command. He says, I say then, this you must do. Walk in the spirit 
and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That really is the essence of what of what Paul says in the rest of these verses. If you understand this verse, everything else kind of falls into place. So, what does Paul mean? Walk in the Spirit. Note the, the context first. If you walk in the Spirit, so let's change it to a sent, one of those if-then state questions. So, uh, uh, statements. If you walk in the Spirit, then you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So walking in the spirit is contrary to fulfilling the desires of the flesh. It's completely opposed to it. And that's what we're called to do. We are opposed, we are to oppose the flesh. And of course, primarily, primarily what Paul has in mind is our own flesh, not the flesh of other people. <laughs> that, that's easy, right? When, when you see uh, another person acting in the flesh, it's easy for you to oppose them, right? Privately or maybe publicly, openly. But when it happens in yourself, there is this desire to justify your actions, right? You know, why did you yell at such and such a person during the, the um, membership meeting? Because he said this or she did that, and I know that what they meant was... We justify ourselves constantly, but no, we, are, we ought to walk in the Spirit. So the context sets this statement up to be a contrast. It really is. So walking in the Spirit is contrary to, is opposed to walking or fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. But what does walk mean? Walk, very simply, the way that Paul uses this language and the language is used in the New Testament, to walk means to live or to conduct yourself in a particular way. Listen to uh, the way that Paul, Paul uses these statements almost synonymously in Ephesians 2. So go forward one book and it's in Ephesians chapter 2. So uh, there's a contrast implicit in Paul's statement. Next is, what does he mean by walk? To live or to conduct yourself. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 2. He's saying, this is the way that you once walked according to the course of the world. Of course, this is negative. Now look at verse 3. Among whom also we once conducted ourselves. That's what it has to do with. It has to do with the way that you live your everyday life, your conduct. So you could say, let's, this is kind of an exercise in translating a verse together. So direct your entire life in the spirit. That's what he's saying. Your entire life should be directed in the spirit. And that little word, in, that preposition, you could even translate it by. So conduct or direct your life by the spirit. And now when we read this statement, you know, people who are spiritual or very emotional, they think, yeah, I do that all the time. You know, I, I, uh, I just, I go into my prayer closet and whatever the Spirit tells me to do, you know, that's what I do that day. So if the Spirit tells me not to go to work, I don't go to work. If he tells me not to pay my rent, I don't pay my rent. You know, I just do what the Spirit, what I'm moved to do. And, you know, all that is, is it's, it's um, modern spiritualism. That's all that is. It's, that's new age nonsense. 
That is not the way that a Christian ought to direct his life. Not at all. So what does he mean by this? That we ought to direct our lives by the Spirit. Well, it's opposed to fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Whatever it is, right? So when you fulfill the desires of the flesh, that means you give yourselves to the things that the flesh craves. And you know what your flesh craves. We're all different. We may all, uh, we may all share in the, the, the truth that the flesh is warring against the spirit. But for one person, the thing that they uh, want to give themselves to, some, some may want to give themselves to pride. Some may want to give themselves to covetousness. Some may want to give themselves to fornication. Some may want to give themselves to gluttony, right? It, we're, we're all made up different, or maybe we have a mixture of each of those. So, so we know what the cravings of our flesh are. We know what they are. But Paul... In Romans, he helps us here. He, he gives us some assistance because he brings up this theme in every one of his epistles. So look at Romans 8 here. Romans 8, verse And, and look at the, how he mixes his language here. Remember, he says to walk, to live according to the Spirit, right? To live according to the Spirit. But now he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So to direct your life by the Spirit means that you are putting to death your carnal Desires by the Spirit. Okay, well, what weapon has the Spirit given to us that is capable of putting to death the flesh? The Word. And it's literally called the sword of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So if I wanted to paraphrase this verse, I would say, Paul, Paul, Paul is saying to us, to Christian people, he's saying, I say then direct your entire life by the instruction of the Spirit in the Word of God, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That is what we ought to do. The instruction that is in this Word is the means by which we put to death the desires of the flesh. Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians writes this. He said, God has stirred up a battle in our bodies. And he probably had a gruff voice. That's how I picture Luther. He had gout. He was constantly constipated. I don't know if you know this. This is part of his history. Everybody knows it. When he wrote letters to his wife, he would say these things to her. <laughs> so he was a probably irritable <laughs> God has stirred up a battle in your bodies. I require of you nothing but to follow the Spirit as your captain and guide. And so also to resist the sinful nature. For that is all you are able to do. Obey the Spirit and fight against the sinful nature. Now how can we do this practically? Here's what I would tell you. Memorize the Word of God. 
And don't, I mean, you could just, any portion will do. But take those things. Take, maybe, there, maybe there's an, uh, a particular uh, area where you're, you're deficient. Let's say you don't understand the things that you ought to hope for. Well, you get together with some Christians and you, where, where are Bible passages that point me to the things that I should hope and trust in? Where are those Bible passages? And you memorize them. And then once they're memorized in your head, right, once you have them, then you meditate on them. You're driving in your car, you turn the radio off, and you begin to think about that passage. You meditate on it. You think about it. And then you study those passages, right? You, you, you dig in at whatever level you can. And then you pray those passages. God, help this truth be evident in my life or help me to believe in this or help me to put this in all. So you memorize, you meditate, you study, you pray, you sing, Sing the word of God. Sing Christian songs that, that hit upon those themes. And not just, you know, um, contemporary Christian music is more harmful than helpful. Because they're basically like Jesus love songs. They're very emotional. They might make you teary-eyed, right? But there's no substance to them. It's like eating cotton candy. Man, it tastes good, but it just doesn't last. You know, it just dissolves. So sing the word, and then ultimately obey it. Do whatever is necessary to obey what the Bible says. Whatever you have to do. Look, if, if you're a man, or maybe even in the age that we live in, and you're a woman, and you struggle with uh, pornography, which is massive, don't have access to the internet. If you have a stash in your house of pornography, throw it in the garbage. Call, and, and if you don't trust yourself to do it, after church, tell one of the fellas, hey, you, you need to come to my house to get this stuff. Because <laughs> I don't trust myself to do it. It's, it. And if you think to yourself, well, that's too shameful. Um, or why is the pastor talking about this? Because it's an issue in this country. And I, I'm certain it's an issue in this community. You have to do whatever is necessary. I, I forget the cheesy movie. It's, I think it was called maybe The Office where the guy takes the computer out and he breaks it with a baseball bat and he's kicking this stupid thing and he's bashing. Office, office space, not a good movie. But, but the point is that, that that computer, to him, it represented those things in his life that he greatly hated. So what did he do? He destroyed it. And that is the way that we ought to deal with our sin. We don't coddle it. We don't hide it. We ought to destroy it at every turn. So memorize the word. Meditate on the word. Study the word. Pray the word. Sing the word. And obey the word. All right, let's pray and then we'll take the cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the instruction Paul gives us. And we ask, Lord, that you would stir up this battle in our bodies as Luther says. Help us to direct our entire life by the instruction of the Spirit in the Word of God. Lord, help us to identify those areas where we are weak, where we uh, give ourselves over to the desires of the flesh, and help us to make those points in which we fight and pray and plead for deliverance and for strength, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please take the cup with me. And now let's uh, stand and sing.
And if you would please turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. said six, but it might be 16. Sorry. Let's see. No. Uh-oh. I'll find it here. Give me one second. It's Judges 6. Yikes. Yeah, next book. (laughs) Judges 6. This is Gideon. Yes. Now I remember. I remember Tuesday now. So, uh, Judges 6, (laughs) beginning at verse 11. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And uh, it's a long section. I'm going to be reading down to verse 24. Judges chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Ebiazerite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Which is a contradiction, right? He's hiding from his enemies. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. You know, he he has a great memory of God's faithfulness and deliverance, but no remembrance of his idolatry and of his family's idolatry. That's a, that's a, a tendency that we have, right? We go through difficulty. God, why aren't you being faithful? And we miss all of our unfaithfulnesses. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the might of yours, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign 
that it is you who walk with me. Do not depart from me, I pray, until I, have come, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. From an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay it on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was an angel or the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O, o Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, Lord, the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abbey Azarites. So, uh, long, uh, of course, this is an, uh, a much longer portion. This uh, covers a much longer portion of Israel's history. We don't need to get all into it. But what we're looking here specifically is, why did he build an altar and why did he offer sacrifice? Why does he do that? Why does he give of, his belong, of what belongs to him and give it to God? Because God offered him peace. And it was the Lord himself who was his peace. Uh, literally, the name that's used here is Yahweh Shalom. This is one of the names of God. And it, how was it? It was by means of the promise. The, the people were weak. The people were beleaguered. They were living in absolute fear of the Midianites. This was all due to their own sin, too. We just read Judges chapter 2 when they turned back to their idols. So the people were weak, and, and now what God does is he extends hope. He extends this promise to Gideon. He, he says, no, I will deliver my people. And what this does for Gideon is a flood of peace comes upon him. And it's in light of that peace he has now with God that he offers his offerings. And that is a motivation for us. Because of the peace we have with God and Christ, because of the peace we have with one another, that should be great motivation for us as God's people to give. So brothers and sisters, according to the way God has prospered you, let us give to the Lord because of the peace he has given to us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Christ. We thank you for his death. Thank you for the peace that we have with one another and with him in light of his propitiation. And we ask that you would accept these things that we offer to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.